1981, two Muslim women, Hadja Hidayat Amirovic and Hadja Safiya Shiyak, from Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was then in Yugoslavia, traveled to Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage in Mecca, by car. They drove through Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, and finally reached Saudi Arabia. The sight of two women driving a car through the Arabian desert invited curious looks by the Saudi police officers, who were polite and did not interfere with their sacred journey. The ladies left a diary that has only recently received scholarly attention. In this episode, Dr. Janita Karic, one of our two guests, talk about their journey, which was covered in her dissertation. Welcome to the fifth episode of Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast, a project by the Ali Wural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University in Virginia. In this fascinating episode, I host two Bosnian researchers, Germana Kuric and Dr. Janita Karic, who reveal a rich history of female piety in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We start by talking about the renewed interest in the study of piety in religion and humanities in general, particularly in Muslim piety. We then zoom on female Muslim piety in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The two guests look at the sources and what these sources tell us about female Muslim piety in Bosnia, starting with the Ottoman era until the present. Throughout the episode, we hear about the fascinating stories of women's resilience during the communist rule in Bosnia and Herzegovina, their commitment to the faith of Islam, female mevlids or celebration of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and of course, the amazing Hajj journey by two remarkable Bosnian Muslim women. As this episode went into production, we received the news that one of the two women, Hajja Safiya Shiyak, passed away. May God have mercy on her. This episode is dedicated to her. My two guests are Germana Kuric and Dr. Janita Karic. Germana Kuric works as a freelance researcher, consultant, translator, and facilitator. At her last position, she spent five years working as an advisor on combating intolerance and discrimination against Muslims at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, in Warsaw, Poland. Previously, she worked as a researcher at the Institute for the Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks, served as the head of Human Rights and Freedom of Religion Commission of the Islamic Community in Bosnia-Herzegovina, as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in Sarajevo, and head of research at Center for Education and Research at Nahla Organization in Sarajevo, Bosnia. She holds a BA degree in English Language and Literature, an MA degree in Religious Studies from the Center for Interdisciplinary Postgraduate Studies, the University of Sarajevo, in cooperation with Arizona State University, University of Oslo, and the University of Copenhagen. She is currently preparing her PhD thesis on Bosnian Muslim women's ways of navigating religious life from World War II onwards. She has co-authored volumes and articles involving the issues of religion, human rights, and women. Our second guest is Dr. Janita Karic. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the Berlin Institute for Islamic Theology at the Humboldt University in Berlin, Germany. She received her PhD in Near and Middle Eastern Studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London in 2018. Her previous research dealt with Bosnian Hajj discourses in a long durée perspective, and she is currently working on devotional piety in the early modern Ottoman period. She has written for the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, 
archív orientálny, príleží z orientálnu filológiu, The Oxford Encyclopedia of Islam and Women, Christian-Muslim Relations, a Bibliographical History Published by Brill, and Cultural History, which is forthcoming. She has also contributed to the edited volumes Muslim Women's Pilgrimage to Mecca and Beyond, Reconfiguring Gender Religion Mobility, and Muslim Pilgrimage in Europe. And here we are with Germana and Dr. Janita. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us as well from my side. Of course, it's such a pleasure to have you both on our podcast. So just to repeat briefly, we're talking here today about female piety, especially focusing on Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Balkans. So I think we should start with maybe a general question. Why is there such a renewed interest in female piety as seen as many recent works, like, for instance, Marion Katz on women in the mosque? Maybe we can start with Dr. Janita first and then ask Germana maybe to try and answer the same question. So in order to unpack the question, I think we need to first challenge or, or ask what um, Islamic piety is and then, you know, kind of extend it to what female Islamic piety is or Islamic piety of women in Islam is. So if we kind of think of it, there are multiple uh, questions which we can kind of connect with, the, with the, the term piety. So do we mean normative piety or the piety of normative rituals such as fasting, prayer, Ramadan, Hajj, um, normative rituals which are recognized as such by the majority of Muslims? Do we mean devotional piety or piety which is primarily focused on the Prophet Muhammad, which includes a different set of rituals, again, connected to it? Do we mean both? So there are multiple questions which we can kind of ask um, to, to kind of flesh out what we want to say about the Islamic piety of women or the uh, female Islamic piety. So in any case, whether we talk about the normative rituals or whether we talk about different types of religious expressions, I think we can agree that there is a set of values, attributes, behaviors, attitudes, even nodes and emotions, which can be defined as pious. And in many cases, or I would say in majority of cases, those revolve around the body. So the body is the main vehicle, the body is the center focal point from which women and men, pious women and men, in a way, express their religiosity. So basically, we can kind of start from the question of the body. But the question of the body also itself entails a different set of problems, in a way. Body itself has been, in a way, contrasted to the normative texts. And that is why bodily practices were not really often in the center of, of Islamic studies or religious studies, at least in the let's say, 20th century. So I would then go back to what, what you asked in the beginning about why is there such a renewed interest in Islamic piety of women or, or female Islamic piety. And then I would kind of link it to several parallel developments which happened in the scholarship, both in the Islamic studies, but also in, in religious studies in, in more general, in, in a wider perspective. So this renewal of, of the interest newly rising interest in uh, the questions of female piety is not something which is only related to the Islamic piety, it's also related to the Christian piety. So there is a very famous book which came out in 1988, I think, uh, by Carolyn uh, Walker Bynum, which talks about women and their relationship towards food in a pious way through both 
hunger and, and cooking, uh, holy feast and holy fast. So basically that book started from the premise that the way we look at the medieval times, the way we look at these medieval Christians, and I think we can kind of comparatively say also medieval Muslims, actually says something more about the way we see ourselves today. So some of the questions which are related to, to the piety of, of women or piety in general actually talk more about our, our age and the age in which we are living. And then we kind of re- reflected through scholarly endeavors onto, onto our historical objects. This is, I think, a great introduction. So Germana, what would you like to add to this, to what Janita just said? So my like first comment in, in relation to this and the idea of um, interest or renewed interest uh, would be to raise also the question of uh, positionality in terms of what we are seeing today or have been seeing, let's say, during the last century, if we, if we just like briefly kind of talk about this, is more and more women themselves being actually able and capable to uh, write uh, or um, testify about their own experiences. So Self-representation in a way. Yes, so we see more and more women who are uh, uh, able to um, share their experience, be it as witnesses, be it as, as uh, interviewees, and also be it as academics, scholars, and writers. And this is uh, what's emerging for uh, women from whatever religious background they are coming from in terms of their piety and them claiming this agency and, you know, sharing their own view and experience of of these things. And this goes also for Muslim women. To uh, rephrase Virginia Woolf here, we are getting more and more women who actually have their own money and their own room to sit and write about these things and share them, which which is important. And on the other side, I would also like to just briefly mention the fact that there are more and more people dealing with this. So what we also need to have in mind is who is writing about these things, why, with what aim, and whether uh, this exploration of Muslim women's piety and writings about uh, it are also coming back to Muslim women themselves. So are they included in this? Do they read about this? Uh, Do they listen to a podcast of this type, for example? You know, like, who does this and for whom? This is also, I think, an important question. Oh, that's great. And Janita, you said you had a couple more thoughts that you wanted to add. So basically, to add on what Germani is saying, this positionality, it didn't just occur out of nowhere. I would say that, again, this renewed interest in the Islamic piety is a result of some very serious rethinking between different academic and, let's say, non-academic spheres, including, for example, this interest in asserting one's agency, which is, in a way, a product of a very fruitful dialogue between different feminisms. So is the secular, liberal, feminist framework the only framework through which we can actually talk about women and talk about their religious experiences? Obviously not. So you have different people who actually speak against this monolithic idea that it's only through the secular, liberal, feminist framework that women can actualize themselves or find their agency, find their voice, etc. And I think piety kind of comes in, in, in the midst of these different debates where women are asserting the agency through the means of their own. But at the same time, again, I don't think that we should observe the agency in this very aggressive manner as something which is like a very vocal rejection of whatever it is. I think there is more to to female piety than, than only the rejection and resistance. 
Yeah, thanks a lot. And I think this sets the stage really well, theoretically speaking, for the rest of our conversation. And I would just like to remind our listeners, too, that in the last episode, when we talked about Islamic thought in Morocco, we had Dr. Mary El Haythami, and she talked about Islamic feminism and feminist thinking in, in Morocco in general. And she pointed out exactly the same thing, Janita, that you were saying, which is that there are different schools of feminisms and that in order for Muslim women to realize themselves, they may draw on you know, inspiration from different types and schools of feminism, including Islamic feminism, which she talked about quite a bit when she talked about Morocco. So with this kind of background that we have, let us now delve a little bit deeper, so to say our case study is Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we're going to start with, again, a general question about that. What can you tell us about female piety and participation in religious life in Bosnia, historically speaking? So again, I have to problematize everything. So we can definitely, of course, talk about forms of female piety in Bosnia historically. But we have to keep in mind two things, or maybe three things. Those are sources, genres, and literacy. So these three things we have to always keep in mind. Sources, they, they can be scant or they can be really rich. It depends how you approach them. It depends, it depends how open you are when approaching them. So the sources obviously give us something. But then we kind of have to think, like, who is actually writing these sources and how are they approaching these sources? There's also involved the question of genre. So, for example, in the sources I was working on, you could often find instructions for pilgrims and those who want to, for example, visit the tomb of the prophet in Medina. And so these very standardized uh, Ziyara manuals usually, or in most cases, included also instructions directed to women as well. So women were included in this religious experience. They were included in Ziyara. They were included in Hajj. You, you could, for example, see the instructions of, uh, for example, how men should approach Medina on foot, while women, because of their delicate state, should actually you know, approach Medina on horse or, or, or something, something like that. So you do see women included in these types of sources. By the very inclusion of women in these sources, you can actually see that they may have been the intended audience as well. And then, obviously, we come to the question of literacy. So historically speaking, most of the material which is there for us is in Ottoman Turkish, it's in Arabic, and there is some amount in Bosnian as well. But when we kind of cross into the 20th century with the rise of the print, that is when you actually get more female voices, so to say. So you, you do get more descriptions of religious experiences by women themselves, which is not to say that the print is always a very positive process or that it has always been a very positive development in, in the history of Muslims in, in general. We have many instances where print actually, in a way, homogenized the religious experiences. So I'm not looking at print as like this always positive development, but in, in the case of Bosnian Muslim women, this is where we can kind of get more information about how they actually experienced the rituals or, or certain religious practices. Thank you, Janita. You walked us briefly through the sources in the Ottoman period and you brought us in the 20th century. And I understand Germana has also done quite a bit of work, especially during the uh, 20th century, I think, especially focusing on the, during the communist era in Bosnia and Herzegovina when it was part of Yugoslavia. So maybe, Germana, can you tell us a bit about that? Well, yeah, I, I, I was uh, planning on adding a little bit more, if possible now, to 
something in relation to this, but I could also go into into the uh, case of socialist Yugoslavia. Maybe just briefly what I wanted to uh, mention here is I've also done a research into the role and position of Muslim women in Bosnian mosques today. And that also involved a part that was dealing with some of the forms of piety that have been present in this this space, let's call it, for some quite some time. And what would be maybe interesting for the listeners is to hear some of these these things because they might be different than something that they've um, they know in terms of their experience and uh, piety of Muslim women uh, in connection to the mosque, which is, for example, that in Bosnian mosques we've always had. Uh, place for women. So it's traditionally something that has been present in our mosques, these spaces, any even up to today. These are sometimes smaller spaces, sometimes bigger spaces, depends on them. But like women have been going to the mosque and there, there was a space for them there. Then the question is obviously what kind of space this was and what kind of space this is today. And this is something that I've researched a bit more into. But before uh, just mentioning that briefly, I wanted to say, for example, that although Muslim women in Bosnia do go to mosques, uh, for example, we traditionally haven't had lots of women uh, going to Juma prayer, for example, or Eid prayer, for example, or Janaza prayer at all, for example. Whereas this is something that in some other uh, Muslim communities is more present or differently present. So it's it's interesting maybe to share this because sometimes we have visitors coming and women asking, like, where should we go and pray Juma? And then we say, well, you can, but only in this one or two mosques in Sarajevo, for example, or one or two mosques in a particular region, which for some uh, some people coming from some Muslim communities is strange in a way from, from what we can gather. So we, we can come back to that a little bit later in our conversation on kind of more contemporary experiences. But maybe to follow up on the earlier question and connect with what Janita was saying earlier about sort of creating some kind of historical continuity and ruptures as well between the Ottoman times and then when Bosnia becomes, you know, it's a part of Yugoslavia before the World War II. After the World War II, a communist Yugoslavia was created. And that changed quite dramatically the way in which religion was practiced, both publicly and privately even. So maybe, Germán, you can tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that period after 1945 all the way until, you know, Bosnia gets independence until 1992. Um, Yes, absolutely. And there is this infamous or famous belief that in some way uh, women preserved Islam in Bosnia during that time. And it's it's always something that comes up in uh, conversations of this type. And this is something also that Tone Bringa speaks about and offers offers uh, her view on this and how, how did this happen and why do we have this belief as well. Uh, what I would like to say in, in this regard is that in my research or in my understanding of this, women obviously don't have any special capacity to transmit religion that's, that's better or different than the one that men have, like piety and a transmission of religion and embodiment of religion and the practice of religion, as Janita spoke about is is uh, something that both men and women obviously do and can do but i would like to highlight here that uh, due to a very specific time that we are talking about there are at least two i would say structural conditions that uh, did bring this topic into into a focus i think uh, the first one is emancipation of women 
or as some authors would say, uh, for sure, mobilization of women during this period. There are discussions about whether this was emancipation, what kind of emancipation and to what extent. And this is an important question, and it's not an easy one. And I, I see it often being very simplified, which it cannot be, because it's a complex period and it's a complex question. So for sure, emancipation for women did happen. We did have many laws that allowed for women to have equal rights as men and to have more access to beat education or labor market at that time. So, But not to go into that too much, I want to say that still, There were women, especially older women, who did still organize their lives around their private spheres, predominantly, which doesn't mean they didn't work. They didn't have a full-time job outside of their home. They worked a lot, but their life was primarily organized around their private sphere. And these were women then who did influence their whole families because they also, you know, guided or helped uh, uh, management of a private and family life. That's, I would say, one. And the second one is obviously related to the socialist regime, which, to say the least, found religion to be socially undesirable. And that's why religion was pushed into the private sphere. Both the practicing of religion for men and for women was pushed towards the private sphere. What I can uh, say from my preliminary research findings at this moment is that it is true that women did then take up this role of organizing um, religious life within the family or within the neighborhood as well through uh, organization of different different events. I will mention a couple of these things, like many of women I spoke to, or several women, let's say, uh, that I spoke to, share with me that they were the ones, for example, who would organize circumcision for boys, sometimes with the knowledge of their husbands, sometimes without the knowledge of their husbands. And this is also interesting to, to discuss, like how these decisions were made. Or like, for example, when a husband leaves for a trip and they organize, they decide that she will organize uh, for the circumcision. And then when he comes back, if he's invited by the party for some informative conversation around this, he will say that he didn't know he couldn't tell his wife not to do this. She did this uh, on her own. Or uh, issues that are uh, connected to this, for example, um, the kurban or the slaughtering of animals, ritual slaughtering of animals, something also that was sometimes organized by women also following the same model of avoiding potential social punishment or even other punishment that could, you know, happen under this regime. And it's interesting to say that some women also share that they know of their Catholic, for example, friends who would baptize their children also like that, you know, women taking kids to be baptized, not always including men men in that, sometimes in concert, in agreement with, with the men of the family, of course, or most of the time, I would say, from what I can see. But this is, this is in the, indeed an interesting uh, period, I would say, often difficult and often called difficult in terms of, of these things. But I would say complex, challenging, and also very interesting to research. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think for our listeners who might not have the background, basically, when uh, Bosnia was a part of Yugoslavia under communism, under the rule of the Communist Party, as you said, many religious practices were looked down upon and were actively discouraged, including circumcision, baptism, and so on and so forth. And it's so interesting to see that women were in some ways acting protectively toward men by doing this while they were absent so that they could, if they were called by the Communist Party to answer, why did you send your kid 
to be baptized or to be circumcised, depending on religion they belong to. They could say, well, I wasn't at home and my wife did it, you know. <laughs> so they could blame it on women, so to say, in a way. Um, so, Janita, maybe uh, would you like to add anything to what Germana just said? Yeah, I just want to add something to Germana's brilliant comment. I think there was a third additional factor which influenced the piety of women in, let's say, in this long-durate long 20th century. And that was definitely the role of Islamic community and especially its Islamic modernist project, which in certain parts collided or was actually very similar with the socialist project. I think the, the major traits are, are almost the same. There are just, you know, certain uh, slight differences. In a certain way, uh, there, there was curtailing or at least a, a critique of certain forms of piety, which can be related to, you know, female piety by, you know, very prominent modernist streams in, 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 in the Islamic community. And I think it kind of goes back to, to some earlier periods, to even, you know, like 1920s, 1930s. I remember he hearing a, a story, if I'm not mistaken, that Mehmet Hanjic, who was, I don't know, I would call him like performatively traditionalist, was totally against, you know, Nawaz or Tawheed or something. And then uh, he changed his mind when he heard women gathering in, in house. Um, I think his mom was making, a, a, was organizing a gathering or something. And then he heard and, and then he changed his mind regarding that. So, you know, we can't really dismiss that side of the equation, you know, that the Islamic community actually had a very authoritative role and sometimes very curtailing and, and limitating role in different forms of, of um, piety, including female piety. Yeah, uh, it's also interesting that that role continues until today. We can talk about the role of the official Islamic community of Bosnia, which is the non-governmental body that sort of regulates and administers all the mosques in in bosnia almost all mosques and religious life and it's in charge of religious education and everything else and so it, it's also interesting to see how it often worked together with the state to, to promote the, the state goals whether it be during the time of Yugoslavia, before the World War II, or during the communist time, or even today, you know, when it comes to vaccination and other things, and we can talk about that later, they seem to be more eager on it than even the government sometimes mm -hmm. to sort of portray that they are good players. But we can come back to that later. Uh, what I found interesting, especially, Janita, when you were talking about how this uh, famous scholar, Mehmet Hanjic, who was, uh, I think, Al-Azhar... Uh, sorry, I'm not completely sure it was him. So I, okay. I'm just putting, uh, <laughs> putting it out there. Oh, okay. So let's say one of those famous scholars who probably was a graduate of, mm -hmm. you know, famous, some seminary or, or Islamic study university somewhere was against these practices that are often considered bidah, you know, the, the, you know, these kind of newly invented matters, as they often called, like mawlid or di different gatherings to, to remember, uh, you know, after somebody passes away after a week or after 40 days, we call it in Bosnia Tawheed, right? So this is where the recitation of the Quran takes place and some chanting and prayers, including poetry recitation often and other things. And we can talk more about that later. And to see that he would change his mind after he saw that women were keeping these practices and these were actually conducive to protecting and promoting religious values and religious life. So even though normatively he might have had problem with that, 
in terms of sociological approach, he realized how important it is in protecting and promoting religious life, especially under those restrictive conditions that they were in. So if I could maybe add to that, since we're talking about very specific examples, and Janita, maybe you can tell us more, and we will go back to what Germana said earlier, but maybe you can tell us more about the practice of Hajj especially, because I know you did quite a bit of research on Hajj and especially as it was performed by Muslim women in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So give us a little bit and maybe with some examples from from that period as well. So when you look at pre-modern versus modern rift or rupture, you can kind of see that, you know, names of women do pop up in the pre-modern period, but very rarely, very randomly, we kind of find out and we are not sometimes even sure whether they really went on Hajj or maybe, you know, sent their battle because simply the sources do not tell us a lot. Again, as we kind of approach the 20th century, the things start to change rapidly. And it's not that women start appearing as authors immediately. It's more that they appear as, you know, companions, fellow Hajis on the way. And... So, for example, in, I think, my favorite Hajj travelogue from the 1938, it's a travelogue by Mohamed Kripov. Mohamed Kripov describes a couple of Hajjas who, um, you know, are a part of the Bosnian Hajj group. And basically, the, the way these women accompany these men as fellow Hajjis throughout, you know, Damascus, Cairo, in Hijaz, it's, it's really beautiful. It really kind of tells you something about, you know, the whole community which transcends all these, you know, gender boundaries or, uh, you know, all kinds of boundaries when, you know, people are actually in pilgrimage and together in, in, in Hajj. So women Hajjis do appear, uh, do start to appear in, in travelogues um, and uh, obviously um, travelogues do indicate only one part of, of the Hajj reality which is that a larger number of people were able to go on Hajj uh, in the 20th century. So sometimes we don't, if we kind of look at the, this lack of women in sources, it's not always because, you know, someone prevented them. It's mostly not because someone prevented them. It's mostly because they, you know, were poor and couldn't go on, on Hajj or something. So... When you kind of progress onto the Hajj travelogues after the twenty uh, after the Second World War, you can see the emergence of female writing about Hajj or women writing about Hajj as well, uh, which occurs in the frameworks of the official gazettes and journals of the Islamic community. So Glasnik, later on Preporod, and other publications. But what I want to say here is that the female participation in Hajj in the socialist period did not go uncontested. There were parts of the ulema which was not really happy with women going on Hajj uh, after the Second World War. So I found a debate between Darvish Effendi Aspach, who was, who was known as this like notorious uh, traditionalist who uh, lived in, in a village, in a secluded village, and who started writing these treatises uh, against uh, female participation in Hajj, saying that, you know, the time is not great. Women shouldn't go on Hajj. They can spoil a prayer for three men. And, you know, it's just not the right time for women to go on Hajj and for men to see them there. And obviously he was, he angered many people in the Islamic community. And, you know, other scholars started writing back 
to him and saying that he is actually using non-Islamic arguments, that he has no grounds for forbidding women from going on Hajj, etc. So this is this can be like an interesting anecdote, but what I see there is actually a, a greater issue and a contestation over like female body on Hajj, which actually talks more about the feelings of threatened masculinity. More than, you know, just, you know, the fact that women, oh, you know, women are actually going to be in greater danger if they go, go on Hajj in socialist times, which they, I mean, let's, let's speak realistically, they were safer going on Hajj during socialist times than, you know, during the 17th century. or So basically, you do have lots of contestations in this period as well. And I would even say that, you know, this, this tension does continue. It's inherent even uh, until now. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. And Germana, I understand you also have something to add to this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nita, for uh, sharing all this. Uh, in terms of contesting the uh, presence of female body in uh, Hajj, uh, I, I would like to point uh, at two things. First uh, is just to remind all of us about the role of Hajar and the fact that Hajj does have uh, one part that's obligatory part to be done during Hajj, that is a reconstruction, so to say, of a women's experience. And there is no Hajj without that. So Hajjar was running from Safa to Marwa several times, as we now do that also uh, seven times, as to remind ourselves of this very particular time when she was alone and leaning on God alone. And that's indispensable part of Hajj, where a female body had to be there in order for us to have it as we have it today. And it's it's paradoxical that, you know, we keep seeing how female body is being disciplined in Hajj as well. And it's important for us always to remind ourselves of this a woman, an African woman, without whom there is no Islam, in fact because that's one of the like main stories that are related to uh, our understanding of Islam that we have even today. And on a lighter note, I would like to share a personal experience of being a Hajji myself, going to Hajj. And when I was preparing, uh, you go and read these you know, recommendations and travelogues and like all sorts of things, and you try to learn about how to do it and how to perform it and what's good to be done, etc. And I was really like trying to put myself in her shoes also when I was doing this walk between Safa and Merwa and like trying to, you know, feel or try to understand how she might have felt, you know, while going there alone in desert trying to find uh, salvation. And the books, indeed, today that we read on that, and there are instructions on how to do Hajj today, do say that men can run there while they do that, while for women it's not recommended that we run there. But I did run a little bit because for me, uh, you know, understanding how this might have felt for her going through between these two hills, she had to run. I'm sure like there was a part of that 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 was also running. You're not like just, you know, slowly walking, being worried that much as she was, as at least I feel as a woman, like I, I would have been, you know. And then while we were doing this, we go in groups, obviously, uh, Bosnian Hajis. There was an older uh, man from Bosnia who was going after me and telling me, don't run here. Women don't run here. And I turned to him and I asked him, but who ran here, Haji? Ko je ovde trčo? 
And he says, Ibrahim Yatarcho, Abraham ran, Ibrahim ran. And I was like, no, it wasn't Ibrahim, it was Hajar. So uh, I think this is also important, you know, these small practices, basically, and Absolutely. our understanding of, you know, what, what this whole beautiful ibadah or pilgrimage is all about. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. And I hope that our listeners find it really inspirational and amusing at the same time. It's one of those stories. No, really. I mean, anybody who has done anything like that will come up, will come back with many stories that are going to be both inspirational, but there's always going to be something that is really amusing. And I think it is these anecdotes that stay with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, to stay with the Hajj, because it's been researched on and written about, Janita, I remember reading, and maybe for our listeners, you can tell us a little bit about the fascinating story of two Bosnian Muslim women who drove their car during the communist time, right? from Bosnia all the way to, to Saudi Arabia, and they did their Hajj by driving the car. So tell us a bit about that story. Yeah, I, I think that story definitely reached many people ever since I wrote about them in, I think it was 2014. Yeah, it could be 2014. Anyways, the two female Hajis in question are Safiya Shilak and Hidayat Tamirovic, and one of them was working for Energoinvest, so a you know a socialist mega conglomerate industry. Company. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other one was a housewife, and both of them were driving, and they decided to go and hatch. But since both of them had connections with the young Muslim movement, and Sofia even spent I think two and a half years in in prison for uh, being a member of, of a female branch of, of young Muslims. They tried to kind of avoid the authorities, you know, they didn't want people to know that they were going on Hajj, not people in general, but more like bosses at, at work. So they decided to go on Hajj by car with their husbands. And they also wanted to, you know, see the places like Istanbul, you know, Ankara, Damascus, all the way to Mecca. They did manage to drive all the way through Hijaz because I think uh, both of them had the international driver's license. And they were stopped just a couple of times by uh, perplexed Saudi policemen. But they actually, I mean, I think that they were more amused than, than you know, confused or, or something. What, what so they, year was this? It was 1981. Okay. 1981. So it was just before the Sarajevo process. Yeah, it was it was a very turbulent time, I guess. What what I found fascinating is that if you read the diary of Hidayata, Hidayata wrote the diary, but Safiya wrote the intro, and they kind of took it so normally. Like they did, they were not even you know they wrote about their experience as they, obviously it was probably the most life changing experience of, of going on Hajj and meeting the the fellow um, Hajis. And I remember Hidayata writing that she discovered the true brotherhood and unity when she was in Hajj. And I found that sentence just absolutely marvelous. It was just it so, was, so... Because that was the motto of the Communist Party, right? It was, yeah, it was the yeah, Communist motto, but she really transposed it onto the Ummah, and it was just so, so brilliant. It is. But the, both of them, they actually took it so normally that they were driving all the way there. It was it, for them. It was yeah. It was like a matter of fact. Yeah, it's it's most convenient. We see many places. We're gonna meet some you know family on the way, Muhajir family in Turkey, and it, it's just like no fuss, nothing. 
And then, you know, just reading that the diary, realizing that these women actually drove to Saudi in 1981. And I guess the publication of, of, of the journal, which unfortunately just came out in, in like 10, 10 uh, copies or something, coincided with the struggle of Saudi women for, for the right to drive. And I just found it really interesting to, to observe this like historical parallel on that example. So so they didn't, I understand, they didn't drive all the way to Mecca, right? They drove maybe to Jeddah? Yeah, they kind of drove up to Mecca, and then I think that they had to leave the car somewhere there. Uh, but still, you know, like driving through through like large parts of Saudi yeah. is still a huge feat. So guide us through the countries, like when they left Bosnia, like well, which countries they would go through all the way to Saudi Arabia? Uh, I, I don't have the, the itinerary in my head completely, but I think that they drove through Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, then I think they reached, uh, they definitely were in Turkey for mm-hmm. a longer period because they also met with some of uh, the family members who were in, in these cities in, in Istanbul and Ankara as well. You know, Bosnian families who which left, uh, um, let's say, Bosnia after the Austro-Hungarian conquest, and so Bosnian Muslims who left Bosnia in, in, in waves and then they, then they entered Syria, Jordan, Saudi. Okay. That must have been quite a journey. And to yes. think, uh, this is, what, 40 years ago? And yeah. if somebody were to attempt that kind of journey, it would be next to impossible today because security situations simply yeah. in places like Syria and so on and just tells you how different the world was just few decades ago. Now, that's a fascinating story, and I do hope that this gets translated into English, mm. because I think it would be really useful for the international audience to learn about these experiences. I remember when I first read this, I think I tweeted about it. <laughs> I created a thread based on your article, Janita, so credit goes to you, Thank you. <laughs> um, about this. So this sort of, you know, bringing it to contemporary times, there are many practices in Bosnia today that are specifically associated with women. So tell us more about this. I know about Zhenski Mevlud, you know, the Mevlud that is only for women. I know about things such as Mukabala or recitation of the Quran in Ramadan for women only and so on. So maybe, Germana, you can tell us more about this. I remember you started talking a little bit about it in an earlier question. So maybe sort of fill us in on that. So I, I can briefly maybe share a bit more about, about this exactly. In this conversation, is Junita's somehow place to question the concepts? Because like, you know, Zhenski uh, Mevlud or, you know, women's Mevlud or women's Mukabela, you know, men also do Mukabela. So reading of the Quran or reciting of the Quran, everyone does that. So sometimes, yes, women do gather and do that on their own. That's, that's of course, true. I uh, touched a little bit on this before, and you also introduced a little bit the institution of the Islamic community. I would just briefly like to say that when talking about mosques in Bosnia, we are talking about around 1,000 600 mosques around. So that's the, uh, let's say the number. And I think all of them, if not most of them are run by one institution, which is the institution of the Islamic community. We don't have too much time to enter into the history and like the the position of this institution, but it's important for also our listeners to kind of have an idea uh, about that as well. So what I would maybe like to add around this is that some of these activities do happen in the mosque, but some of them still also happen privately in in the homes. And some of these reasons, uh, I think, are because of, um, let's say, official positions of the Islamic community and sometimes women... uh, 
don't find the right space there or acceptance or acceptance in the way that they, they would like it to be, so to say. So there, there is this whole uh, the concept of unmosking, which is like often younger women or uh, women who don't feel uh, accepted leave the mosque and organize the activities in some alternative spaces. It can be private spaces of their, pri- of their homes, as you mentioned, and this does happen, or some other spaces that they decide to also do this in. And I think that's um, sometimes neglected that uh, due to nature of Islam, so to say, and Islamic practices, uh, basically activities can happen anywhere or these pious activities uh, occur in, in different spaces. So this is something I wanted to, to maybe also include a little bit. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Do you think that's something new or has it been around for some time? That that whole concept of unmasking and especially among younger women to feel as if they are not really included in the official Islamic community in the mosque and they are seeking these alternative places. Is that something new or has it been around for a while or has it changed over time? I think it changed over time. From the top of my head, what I would say as an answer to this, like women have always had their safe spaces, you know, where they also practice Islam together in different forms and ways. This has has been present uh, always. My grandma, if I go back to my personal experience, my grandma used to have women coming to her home, reciting the Quran together or having uh, women's mavlit together or exchanging copied materials. I remember when the copy machine (laughs) appeared, how thrilled my grandma was. (laughs) She could now copy everything and share with her girlfriends. So this is just, you know, our lives, basically, how this was. But today, when we are talking about this unmosking or, you know, challenging uh, uh, of the division of the space, physical space in the mosques, but I would also say symbolic space and other types of like spaces and presence of women, this is definitely currently being discussed, challenged, considered, reconsidered a lot, actively so, for all sorts of reasons. I would maybe invite our listeners to check a website that was, uh, in fact, established by an American activist, Hind Maki, that's called Side Entrance, that's inviting women from all over the world to take photos of women's spaces in mosques and share how this looks like. And I would say that I personally do think that if you enter a mosque and you look at the space that's left for women, this tells you everything you need to know about that particular Muslim community, you know, because it tells you like, you know, how life is organized, how this community sees itself, whether women uh, have the access that they need and feel included there or not. So I I, I personally believe uh, this is one of the important topics that we within the Muslim circles should be discussing more and have more focus on, you know, listen to women more, not because we want to like listen to women only, but because this tells us something about our communities. And it's a very important indicator, I, I would I would claim. So take me to the female section of your mosque and I'll tell you something about your community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, Janita? Yeah, just wonderful what Germana said, that it you know, some forms of Islamic piety, female piety actually tell us more about the society in, at large. And I would just try to expand this to, in a way, include men as well. Piety is not a fixed concept or a fixed practice. It, it's not a fixed attitude, so it changes throughout times. And, you know, we could see how female piety changes throughout 
generations and, and times and in different you know, ge geographical um, spaces. But at the same time, we also have to kind of keep in mind that female piety is not separable from male piety. And again, to kind of draw further conclusions, the way women shape themselves through their piety or, you know, certain types of ideal femininity, ideal religious persona, work parallel to the ways in which men also fashion themselves. So I think, you know, the research on female piety has been really scant, but it's still in much better shape than uh, the research on, let's say, masculinities which arise from male piety or how men, you know, shape themselves uh, in, in contemporary society. Germana and I were discussing the Days of the Prophet in uh, which uh, festival or series of events going on in, in Sarajevo in the recent couple of years. And basically how, how different it is in some ways from, let's say, Maulids from four, 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So it's, it's a definitely interesting dynamics to be observed. Yeah, so it's an evolving practice in many ways and it bears the mark of its time and the context in which it is produced too, right? Yeah, I mean, if we kind of think of, of these public forms of, of devotional piety in, in Bosnia, at least, we could see that they focus in, in, in a large number of cases on the devotion towards the Prophet Muhammad. And somehow you can actually see how the image uh, and the imagery about the Prophet is also changing. I, th I think you posted on, on your social media, like I followed in two years, I followed uh, the continuity and rupture. <laughs> So last year you posted a Mewlid which stressed the decolonial role of, you know, the prophet. This year you play, you, you posted something else. So would you mind commenting on that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just, I, I really did not think that deeply about it. I just wanted something different because I remember that last year for the Mewlid, I posted one video and I didn't want to do the same thing. And then, you know, somebody would say, this guy just posts like the same thing. So I found one mm -hmm. and of course germana called me out immediately yeah. that's why it's omitting a few lines you know <laughs> uh -huh. well no i think uh, th this is a great i'm so happy we are like going going this way I, I i would make like maybe two additional comments what i gathered from what janita is explaining how i read this is that like you know some of these medleads that we used to see i used to see growing up let's say my grandmother organizing these were women's spaces and mostly women's mevlids, and they were in private sphere. But now, after communism, well, after everything we had, it became much more popular, so to say, there is more social capital if you are a part of a medley than it used to be. So now, all of a sudden, we see more and more men also joining this mm -hmm. because it's it has a completely different um, implications in the society today. You know, when it's it very was... performative too, right? It's very performative piety. Well, um, like, it seems like that. I wouldn't claim it is like that because, you know, one never knows. But like we saw, we see something that now bears some social capital now more and more becoming a, a male thing, you know, or a man's thing, which is like a classic way how things go if we analyze, you know, from a feminist analysis, patriarchy and stuff. When something gains more power, it kind of slides towards men more than, you know, it used to be, well, than it used to be. And also, I, I, I really would like to comment a little bit on this, what Janita said in terms of like, how do we come to see the Prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wa You know, like, uh, I have this, and I will just briefly ex explain what I mean by this. 
Like, what were his characteristics of, of, of his, like, character? You know, sometimes when we discuss about these, like, uh, celebrations of uh, around Mevlid, we hear about the battles and battles all the time, you know, which drops a lot of, uh, of other things from Prophet's life. Like, not discussing maybe too much how he was in his attitude towards women, others, minorities, you know, compassion and, you know, other other parts of, of who, who he was. And there is this one interesting uh, exercise I sometimes do with Muslim youth. I divide them into three groups and individually tell them, I tell one group to write down women's traits. I tell another group to write down men's traits. And then the third group to put down prophet's traits. So, you know, the one that deals with prophet, if we, they put down uh, uh, prophet's traits, they will include compassion, they will include gentleness, they will include humbleness, they will also include strength. And some of these then when you have them, you know, separately talking about how women are and how men are, they will not include all of these, you know, characteristics that luckily still they do include for the prophet himself. So it's a way uh, for me to bring them back to understanding that prophet is much more than sometimes we present him to be depending on our own need, you know, what we want him to be primarily or who speaks about him and how he's being talked about. So it's always interesting to co to come back to this, reminding ourselves, for example, that he did have longer hair or he would also dye his hair sometimes, or he would put eyeliner as well. You know, these are parts that we don't hear that much or that often because they challenge our own way uh, today, how we frame, you know, uh, masculinities and femininities, I think. Yeah, and especially masculinity as it's constructed under the newly globalized, you know, ways of, of constructing these identities and so on. So this has been fascinating conversation, and I'm sure we could continue on and on, but we also have to keep it manageable. So maybe for parting thoughts, would you like maybe as a way of conclusion, each of you to conclude what we have been talking about so far? Uh, very, very shortly, I think Islamic piety or and female Islamic piety, uh, Islamic piety of women, is definitely, let's say, a rich pool of resources from which both Muslims and non-Muslims can draw upon for inspiration. And I really hope that people who do research on Bosnian, whether Bosnians or non-Bosnians, are actually going to pay more attention to this lived religion of, of Bosnian Muslims rather than, you know, just ascribing the top-down processes and, and their effects to, to, to Muslims. Or looking at Muslims as some kind of security threat or through securitization yes, and, exactly. and all of that. Absolutely. Thanks, Germana. Yeah, we didn't have even time to go into into like the ways how our piety is influenced or conditioned by the securitization paradigm, but not please, to go please into that. that if you if you if you would like to. Especially okay. as as it pertains to female piety, because that is our topic. Feel free to add. Uh, well, just briefly to say, like, it influences whether, you know, how you choose whether you will go to mosque, how you will dress, what you will take with you, what objects you will show that you have. Because, you know, unfortunately, some of these practices are being now used as flags, you know, to indicate that someone is, quote unquote, radicalizing, whatever that means. So it can be, you know, it can have direct influence into your personal life and work. So people, women for sure, do think about these choices, you know, before they leave their homes. And women generally do, do like navigate 
their whole life around the fact that they're women and, you know, all sorts of things can happen to them based on this. And now adding to this layer is also the layer of being a Muslim woman, you know, in a, in a, in a society as it is today. And that also influences, you know, how will you navigate practice of your, of your faith? But to offer a, a concluding thought, I do think, as, as Janita says, this offers so much food for thought. And I would like anyone who is like ready to listen about this, not to be defensive and like, you know, because we do often get these defensive attitudes about no, no need to speak about some specific experiences. I do think specific experiences can teach all of us many things. And as, as we said, like how women are treated in a particular community tells you about the, this whole community, you know, and that's why this can help anyone who, who is interested to listen to this with an open heart, you know, because it tr- can transform our societies and our communities and can, you know, help us all understand more how it is when you are differently positioned than, than others in that community or society. So that's, that's where I do believe it can be useful for many people. Well, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation, and I hope that our listeners will have found it the same way. This was an episode of Islam on the Edges podcast of the Maidan podcast with the Ali Woodall Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. We talked with Germana Kuric and Dr. Janita Karic on the topic of female piety in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janita, and thank you, Armin.